0: Today's lecture is, Effect of the Fall. Now, how Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be taught of your Spirit, We express our utter dependence upon him, that we might learn your truths, that they might transform our lives. We pray that the Holy Spirit will give us a combat knowledge of the Word, that we might spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. finish up the record of the fall of man into sin, the invasion of sin in the universe. And we call this the, the fall of man. And we want to see what effect it had upon man. And then we'll see later what effect it had upon God. All right, we were up to verse 7 yesterday in Genesis chapter 3. put this in your notes, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 13 through 15 tells us that Eve was deceived when she sinned. Now she is guilty for the sin, but she is not held as legally culpable for the sin. In other words, the woman is not held as legally responsible for bringing sin into the universe because she was thoroughly deceived. However, she suffers the consequence of it. But the one who is fully responsible for sin entering the universe, or I should say entering the realm of man, is Adam, because it says Adam was not deceived. When Eve decided in her heart to partake of the tree, she fell at that moment because sin is not an act. It's first an attitude and then it's an act that starts in the heart. And the minute she decided that she was going to not believe God and not believe what she knew about God, that was the sin right there. That was the beginning. And then she consummated that sin by actually doing what God had forbidden. But Adam was there watching the whole thing, and he sinned in the face of full light. He knew exactly what he was doing. And so the man is held as the one who is legally responsible for for uh, bringing sin into the human race. Now, this is a very important point because this is why the woman could be the bearer of a Savior. The responsibility legally for sin is passed down through the human father. And uh, the sin nature that comes with it is passed down through the human father. But the woman is not held legally responsible for the sin, therefore, If there could be born into the world a child without a human father, he would be sinless. Now, this is brought out in Genesis 3.15 because it says it's the seed of the woman who would ultimately undo what Satan started there in the garden. And that's the necessity of the virgin conception. Jesus Christ had no human father, therefore he was not born with the sin of the human race upon him. Therefore, he could qualify to die for our sins because he had no sin of his own. So that's an important point. Adam sinned knowing full well what he was doing. He was not deceived at all. As a matter of fact, there's indication that there was a visible change in the countenance of Eve when she sinned. Something happened to her. The very constitution of her being changed And it was manifest on her face and Adam saw the result of it and he did it anyway. And the motivation for Adam doing this is hard to determine. We can only speculate. But uh, I believe that Adam sinned because he loved Eve more than he loved God at that point. He saw that Eve was fallen and he decided he'd rather go with her than stay with God. He put her before he put God. All right, now it says in verse 7, Then the eyes of them both were opened. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean they were blind up to this point. They could see physically. But it's talking about, in phenomenal language, the fact that their understanding was opened to an experiential knowledge of evil. and they knew the experience of having exalted their reason and their will against the reason and will of god it rejected fellowship with god their eyes were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves apron like girdles now this is extremely important to note this first effect that was visible after sin had uh, struck with its venom into their being. Now, the rest of this passage indicates that they did not feel... uh, This indicates a sense of guilt. This is why they acted this way immediately. A sense of guilt hit them. But... It is not that they were so much guilty in the face of each other or that they were trying to hide from each other, but they were trying to hide from God their sense of guilt because they didn't hide from each other. They hid from God. And some people like to make some big to-do about the, the innate evil of sex here, and it's not teaching that at all. Sex within God's law is still something created of God and intended to be a blessing for the human race. There's nothing inherently wrong with sex as long as it is participated in within the realm that God created it to be. But they had an immediate sense of guilt and they began to manifest that most devastating of all experiences by the fact that they had a sense that they were no longer worthy to stand in the presence of God, and they even felt a sense of guilt with each other, but it was because of their sense of guilt before God, thus entered one of the most destructive experiences known to man, guilt complex. This is probably one of the most terrible problems that has plagued man all the way down through the history of his existence. And this started something that we can see here in progression. First, there was sin, which immediately produced a sense of guilt. And this sense of guilt immediately produced estrangement from God. Let me tell you something. That's what a sense of guilt will always do. There's nothing good about a sense of guilt. There's no redeeming quality about a sense of guilt. And I'll bring that out in just a minute. Satan has used this guilt complex to destroy more Christians as well as keep non-christians from god than any other factor in the human makeup now in the rest of this chapter god provides a way to break this syndrome or this cycle that keeps repeating itself sin which immediately results in a sense of guilt, which immediately results in estrangement from God, because this estrangement produces a fear of judgment. A fear of judgment. There is one one, uh, knowledge or one light from God that is common to every man, and that is an intuitive sense that when we do something wrong, that it deserves judgment from God comes from our conscience. And if we do not know God's remedy, it produces a devastating guilt complex which drives us to estrangement and fear of judgment and suspicion of God. We no longer can trust God. When you're estranged from God, you can't trust Him, and therefore God cannot work in your life. And this is... uh, something that most Christians seem to not be able to get the point. This is where the devil has had a field day. His name, the devil, means the accuser, and he accuses the Christian's conscience, constantly trying to get them to forget they've been forgiven. So that guilt complex sets in and estranges them from God, and then the very one that they could trust and be delivered with his power from uh, temptation is the one they're cut off from. When you borrow money and you tell a person that you're going to pay them back on a certain day and then you can't pay them back on that day, who's the last person you want to see? (laughs) The person to whom you owe. Now, There are several responses that man can have the guilt. Every man has guilt. And there's a, another thing that's very clearly pointed out here: No man can live with guilt. It's impossible for man to live with a guilt sense of guilt. And so men try to deal with it on a conscious level by their own ingenuity. Now one of the first things that happens is uh, self-righteousness. That's the first response that's possible to this sense of guilt. And so you try to make up for what you've done to God by doing good deeds and especially religious deeds. And self-righteousness is human good which is utterly rejected before God. You can do nothing to make up for sin that you've committed by paying God back, by doing uh, that amount of good deeds. Now, this is the person who has an idea that there's a sort of a teeter-totter in the justice of God, and if you pile up more good deeds than bad deeds, then God will accept you. And that's a common philosophy among men. Judas Iscariot thought this was the way it happened. When Judas betrayed Jesus Christ for thirty pieces of silver and he saw that he was condemned, it says in Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 5, that when he saw Jesus was condemned, Judas felt remorse. The word remorse means guilt. Now, instead of that sense of guilt causing him to see that God had provided forgiveness so that he could admit he was guilty on the one hand and not feel guilty on the other hand. See, there's a great difference between admitting you're guilty and feeling guilty. If he had known that there was forgiveness and he had believed in Jesus Christ, then he could have admitted he was guilty but not felt guilty. But because he had rejected what Christ provided, he he launched Operation Self-Righteousness. And so what did he do? He went back to the ones who had given him 30 pieces of silver, and the first thing he did was to confess that he had sinned. He said, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. That confession was of no value whatsoever. Because... The confession was with a view to making up for what he had done, not to accept a forgiveness that was already there. So he was just trying to solve his sense of guilt. And then it says he tried to give the money back. In other words, he was trying to pay back for the deed he had done. And it was trying to do away with his sense of guilt. And yet because that can never really deliver you from guilt, he went out and killed himself. Then there is another response that men have to guilt, and that's self-justification. Now, self-justification means that when you, when you see you're guilty, you get, a, you get a guilt complex, you get estranged from God, you don't believe that he's provided forgiveness, and therefore you begin to try to handle guilt by saying, I'm not really responsible. It was society's fault. Guess which century this is popular in. The assassin didn't kill Martin Luther King. It was all of us. Malarkey. And so man tries to get away from this sense of guilt by saying, I'm not really responsible. Well, that's the tact... Adam and Eve took both self-righteousness and self-justification as a way of do it, dealing with their guilt. Now there's uh, just to complete the record, there's another way of responding to guilt, and that is agnosticism. All men know they uh, have this sense of guilt, they know they're doing wrong, they know that they are justly condemned before God. And, and some men just don't want to have anything to do with God, so in order to be able to live with their conscience, they do away with the idea of God altogether, and they say everything's relative after that. They say that, uh, you know, everything's situational ethics. And so in order to be able to live with their conscience, they say there is no God, and once you say there is no God, then there's no necessity for absolute standards, therefore they can at least consciously live with themselves, but in the subconscious mind, there is irreparable devastation. Now, there's another way of responding to guilt. And from the beginning, God has provided this way. In fact, God's been in the forgiving business since the beginning. If there's any enterprise that God has engaged in to the full, it's the enterprise of forgiving men. All kinds of men, gross men, moral men, religious men, all of them need to be forgiven. And so from the very beginning, we see that God provided an answer. But first, let's take it up in context how he provided it. We see that uh, in verse 8, God came for his usual visit with man and woman, and instead of them running to him, and saying, Oh God, we sinned. I admit I'm guilty. I did what you told us not to do. But God, I know your love and I know I can trust you and I throw myself upon your mercy. That's what they should have done. Even though they had sinned, they should have come to God immediately and thrown themselves upon his mercy because they knew enough about God to know they could do that. But what did they do? Well, they committed the first act of religion, self-righteousness. The first act of religion was to sew fig leaves together with their own hands and try to cover their guilt. Now there are lots of cathedrals today in which they're sowing fig leaves. Because sowing fig leaves is trying to become acceptable to God by your own efforts. That's religion. Christianity is not a religion, really. Christianity is coming to have a personal relationship with God through a a personal union with Jesus Christ and being acceptable on the basis of him taking our place and taking our judgment for us. Now, that's not a religion. It's a gift of righteousness which comes through faith. Religion doesn't teach that. Religion says man can become acceptable to God on the basis of what he does for God. Now, that's the common denominator of all religions, whether it's Buddhism, Shintoism, Hinduism, Christian science, or any so-called religion which teaches that. It's false. And so they came... uh, God however, in grace and in love sought man anyway because that's the kind of God he is. Man didn't want anything to do with God. Man had gotten under the guilt complex. He was now estranged from God and he was afraid and suspicious of God. And so he hid himself and man's been trying to hide himself ever since. And so God had to step into the picture in pure undeserved love, which is what we call grace, and seek man out anyway. And so God said, Adam, where are you? So Adam says, we're known. And so he said, I didn't want to come out because I knew I was naked. And so then God begins to interrogate them, To make them admit what they had done because if there's anything that God hates it is self-justification you can trace this all the way through the New Testament and the Old Testament God hates the self-righteous and the self justified and so God was giving them an opportunity to admit what they did but instead they engaged in the first acts of self-justification better known as buck passing. In verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave me gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. In other words, Oh, listen, it's not my fault, God. It's your fault. You gave me this blame woman here. And look what she's done to me. Sound familiar? So instead of admitting guilt, they couldn't admit guilt because they did not believe in the love of God, that God would provide a, an answer. And there was no visible provision, and so what did they do? They they simply tried to cover up their tracks and say I'm not really guilty. And if you don't see God's provision for sin, that's the only thing you can do. Now, we have had, as, as all, most of you know, a great revolution in crusade about confession of sin. You know why? Because we got to the point where we were not really emphasizing the cross. Now, it was inadvertent. It was no one's deliberate intention. But God called us to see that. Now, a person who's going around confessing his sin to God, and this means to admit his guilty, will go nuts if he doesn't know he's already forgiven. You can't admit you're guilty to God and be honest with God unless you know you're forgiven. It'll drive you crazy. And so therefore, people got to the point where they said, boy, I just don't want to admit I'm guilty anymore. So, man, that must not be in the Bible. But the real problem is that they didn't know there was forgiveness and that they were forgiven because of God had provided an answer. You see, it's no issue to me because on the one hand, because of what Christ did for me, I can I can come to God boldly and be honest, and I don't mean brashly, but I mean on the basis of faith I can come to God and when I sin, I can say, God, I admit, I'm guilty, but I thank you, you're not counting that sin against me because I'm forgiven, so therefore I can be honest with you. But if you don't know that, you can't do it. And you resort to self-justification, and God hates that. Or you resort to self-righteousness, or you go into rebellion, which is a Christian form of agnosticism. You just begin to say everything's relative. You just can't know anything and all the heck with it. Let's have a party. (laughs) Mm. Sound familiar? (laughs) All right, so God takes the woman then. He says, And Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I did eat. So then the Lord said, well, it's time to start with the bottom here. The serpent's getting all the blame. So the Lord started with the serpent. And it was at this point that the serpent ceased to be the most beautiful of the animal kingdom. God cursed it. And from that point on, it was to crawl on its belly like a reptile. And from that point on, it was no longer beautiful, but it has outer characteristics of its heinousness, of its terribleness. And there's a, a natural loathing in the human heart of a serpent. And even its characteristics of striking without warning with deadly venom, which injects venom into the body which will bring about death, that's an illustration of what it did, what it was used to do in injecting the venom of sin into the human race, which would be passed on by birth from one generation to another, a venom which would eventually kill physically, everyone who would live thereafter, but a venom which caused all men to be born physically alive but spiritually dead. We'll take that up in a minute. Now, God started pronouncement of judgment because God had to give the consequences which come from sin. The consequences had been brought upon man by his own choice and the consequences were the same as if you jump off of a ten-story building. There's a law that takes over and you're going to squash on the sidewalk. And so sin brings with it an irrevocable consequence and it brought this Fall of man here. Now, in the midst of pronouncing judgment, God immediately announces a plan that the rest of the Bible uh, uh, expounds. In verse 15, while he's speaking to the serpent, and he's speaking to Satan through the serpent, this is the common way that God does in the Bible. He's speaking to the Satan in the serpent, and he says, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring." He that is the seed of the woman shall bruise and tread upon your head and you will lie in wait and bruise his heel. Now Adam and Eve understood exactly what this meant. But we have to understand it in the light of the New Testament. But here's what it means. God announced right there that there was going to come an offspring from the woman, not from the man, notice. It only, grammatically, it's, it shuts out the possibility of it being an offspring of the man. Grammatically, it's only an offspring of the woman in this verse. He says, there's going to be a, an offspring which you will have, woman, which will deal a fatal blow to the to the uh, serpent. And he's speaking to Satan through the serpent. A fatal blow to Satan. Now, that is a reference to the second advent of Jesus Christ. But he says, on the other hand, Satan will deal a blow which will not be mortal to the seed of woman. Now, that's the first advent when Satan put Christ on the cross, or he was allowed to engineer it while God had control of the whole show anyway. And it shows how that Christ would be judged. This is the first prophecy of Jesus Christ right here. Now, in the midst of all of this grief, God continued to pour judgment or or the consequences of their sin upon them. And yet, the reason Adam could withstand all of this is because the minute God gave a promise, see, he gave a promise before he pronounced punishment. And the only reason Adam could withstand the punishment that was pronounced was because he clung tenaciously to the promise that was just given. And so as soon as God pronounced all of this punishment, it says in verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve, which means life spring in the Hebrew. The first thing he did was rename his wife. And he renamed her by faith in what God said in Genesis three fifteen, he knew that he was dead spiritually and he was in the process of dying physically at this point. And yet he says, to Eve, "He says, Woman, your name is now Eve because you are the mother of all living. You are the life spring. Out of you shall come life out of this terrible calamity. And he was expressing faith in the promise that God had given of a Savior. And the minute Adam expressed faith in God's promise, what happened? God said, give me those fig leaves. And it says that the Lord God, for Adam also and for his wife, verse 21, the Lord God made long coats of skins and clothed them. Now, in order to make those skins, coats of skins, God had to kill an innocent animal. And so they saw the gospel in the garden right there. That's the first thing that they ever saw die. And they had a dramatic illustration that the consequence of sin is the death of something, but yet they saw that God's judgment, which should have fallen on them for the sin, fell on an innocent victim who was judged in their place. And then there is this beautiful analogy, beautiful figure of speech, which is used all the way through the Bible, of God clothing someone. And God clothed them with the skins of these innocent victims who died as a consequence of their sin. And that is a picture of God clothing us with his righteousness. It's a picture of justification by faith, which means that God gives us his righteousness when we simply believe in his promise and believe in his sacrifice. All right, that's how God started short-circuiting short-circuiting this the guilt syndrome. Here's God's progress. Sin causes guilt, estrangement. But God has always had an answer. In sacrifice, that is the judgment due the guilty one falls on an innocent one. And of course this would ultimately be fulfilled in the cross. The animal sacrifices were ordained of God to be a visible demonstration that judgment, instead of falling on the guilty one, fell on an innocent one, and therefore he was forgiven on that basis. It would ultimately be fulfilled in the cross through the seed of woman that was promised here. And so when man sins, the thing he needs to do is look to the sacrifice and respond with faith, which simply says, I count true what God has done for me, and I believe that God is free to forgive me because the judgment due me has fallen on Christ. And then by faith, you come into, at the point of salvation, you come into an eternal standing of forgiveness and acceptance, just as you are. God fully and unconditionally accepts you just as you are. The only trouble is that the Christian doesn't keep this knowledge naturally. It takes constant cultivation. The Holy Spirit has to constantly bring this to you from the Scripture or you will be defeated by the accuser who will get you in the area of weakness. You see, every one of us have in our old sin natures an area of weakness. And in this area of weakness, we are constantly tempted, and there's where we sin the most. Now, the problem is, after you've sinned 150 times in one area, let's say within a couple of days, and that's not unrealistic, that you finally get to the point where you're tempted to stop looking at the sacrifice and start looking at yourself and the problem you have and then to get in the trap of guilt complex, which immediately estranges you from God and you can't trust Him anymore, and the very one who could give you the power to be delivered from sin is now not trusted. The only way you can walk by faith is to believe you're forgiven. If you don't know you're forgiven, you can't walk by faith. I hope that's clear. This is the most important thing you'll get in this course. Now, When you look to the sacrifice, the cross, and respond by faith, you remember you're forgiven, this wonderful phenomena can take place. On the one hand, you can admit to God that you're guilty. You can have an attitude which just says, Lord, I know I'm guilty. Thank you that I have been forgiven. You see, your forgiveness takes place the moment you believe in Christ. You admit your guilt as you does them. And the reason you can do it is because you know that God accepts you and when you sin, it doesn't make him turn his back on you. Now, since you can admit that, do you know what that does? Our part is to admit that we're guilty. God's part is through the Holy Spirit to work repentance in you. You cannot repent yourself. Do you know that? Repentance is worked in your heart by the Holy Spirit as you admit you're guilty. Otherwise, repentance would be a work, and that would be unacceptable unacceptable to God. The Holy Spirit changes your mental attitude, and you move on to trusting God, and then you don't sin more, you sin less. But the one who gets under this guilt and forgets the sacrifice is the one who sins more. This is the one who's always going around bemoaning his sin. This is the one who, when he sins, he he goes around and he has a self-imposed penance system. And the one you need the most when you sin, you need God more than life itself when you sin. And yet... You can't come to the one that can do something for you unless you know you're forgiven. If you don't know you're forgiven, you'll be driven from him. That's what happened here. And you'll resort to self-righteousness and self-justification or rebellion eventually. Now, there are other things which happen to man here, devastating things, as it says in first are in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 Let's look at that now Romans chapter 5 verse 12 All right, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All right, here's what happened to Adam and Eve the moment that they sinned in their heart. I showed you yesterday how that man in in the beginning was made in the image of God in his immaterial part. Man has three dimensions of life body, which is his material being, soul, which is his immaterial part being, that part in which dwells personality, that part of him which has the image of God, will, intellect, emotion, conscience, and e- everlasting being, that part of him which can relate to the physical world around him and understand and uh, relate to it. He forms his worldview, the material world and the soul, and so on. That part of man which relates to the outside world via the five senses, sight, hearing, touch, taste, smell. Then I said there is the spirit, which is that dimension of life through which man could know and understand God, and which is the part, the dimension of man, which has the sixth sense, which is faith, which is not founded on blindness or founded on... Uh, lack of facts, but it's founded on fact. It is actually uh, perceiving God and understanding Him. It's the only part of man through which he can really know and understand God. Now, in the moment that man sinned, at that very instant, this life was wiped out. That's what God meant. In the day that you sinned, you shall die. He died instantly, spiritually. That's why guilt set in. Because no longer was he able to understand the true nature of God. You can know God exists, but you can't understand his true nature. And so instantly there was this darkness that was put within him. The highest dimension of life that man had was was, uh, taken out. And as Romans 5 says, this death spread to all men. All men were born physically alive thereafter, but spiritually dead. You and I were born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Now this is why Jesus said, Unless a man is born again, he cannot understand the kingdom of God. Because he must have spiritual life. Now Adam and Eve were born spiritually when they believed in God's promise. The first two were saved. All right? Now this is why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. The reason is because man in his natural state is born physically dead and he has established a whole world view using his five senses. And the temptation is to say there's nothing that can be true or there's nothing that can exist outside of my five senses. Or there's nothing that can be true that someone else hadn't proven by the five senses. And so you can talk to a man with a Ph.D. What's the matter? I don't have time. Listen, I'm, uh, by the way, you who have questions, I'm going to arrange for a seminar where you can ask questions. But they've cut me down to 45 minutes, and I just can't make it unless I keep driving. So I'm going to set up a time for questions. And you write down your questions, and we'll take them up in in a special seminar. All right. Uh, Where was I? What's that? All right. You take a professor with a Ph.D., my favorite subject, and you tell him about Christ, and he says, that's idiotic. No scholar believes in bunk like that. Well, what he's telling me is he's not really intellectual because he's saying that, well, look, because I've never seen Christ, I've never heard him, I've never seen the miracles he's done, it's never been validated by five senses in my sphere of experience, therefore it cannot exist. And I say there's a very stupid man who says only that which I can see, hear, touch, taste, and smell is really true. It's like trying to explain a rainbow to a man born blind. Now, you take a man born blind and you give him all kinds of sophisticated arguments about what a rainbow is like, proof that it exists and everything, he says, I don't believe it. He's never seen a rainbow. Now, let's say that you've just done this and all of a sudden someone could miraculously give that man eyesight. He looks out there and he says, it's true. No arguments, nothing. He just looks and he says, I can see it now. That's what happens when a man is born spiritually and that's why it's It is idiotic to try to prove God to a non-Christian. God says you stick to the simple gospel and the Holy Spirit will bring him, if he's open at all, to accept Christ. And when he's born spiritually, then he'll understand, but not before. It's like trying to prove a rainbow to the blind man. So this is the devastating effect. One of the other devastating effects, first there was guilt, which was the evidence of this spiritual death. And the, re- the guilt for sin spread to all men because there was a third thing that happened immediately to man. At the very center of man's being, there was left a void. Man could no longer understand God in truth. He could no longer uh, perceive and understand God uh, as a person. So he was darkened, and in the place of this spiritual life, there developed a nature which we'll just call the old sin nature. The scripture calls it the flesh. It calls it sin in the singular many times. But it's a nature which is not as bad as it could be, but it's in rebellion against God. Moral men have sin natures. They've learned to cover up up on the outside what's really going on in the inside a little better than the heathen. But they still have a sin nature, and that is what spread to all men. Now, the Scripture tells us about this and very quickly, and we'll cut off now in just a second. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This is, I'm giving you three doctrines today. The doctrine of spiritual death, the doctrine of guilt, and the doctrine of the sin nature. All right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Add to your list of Scripture, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead has he made alive, it says. So it shows that the person who is born physically alive is dead. Now, in the effect of this is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. This is what's true of all men who are not born spiritually. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with you, with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. You see, they're darkened in their understanding because they do not have the life of God in them anymore. They, I mean we, until we're born spiritually. He that is born once shall die twice. He that is born twice shall die but once. All right? Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. All right, so the third effect of sin upon man was that he was, he was uh, corrupted with a nature which was opposed to God. So you have the effect of guilt, the effect of spiritual death, the effect of the sin nature... Tomorrow we're going to see how he became a slave of Satan and placed himself by his own will under the authority of Satan as a slave master. And I want you to read these scriptures in preparation for tomorrow. And by the way, I'm not checking up to see whether you did these things or not. There will be some things I'll check up on. But if you don't do this, you're the one that's going to be the loser. So be sure and do these things. You should learn to be educated not in order to please the teacher, but just to get some knowledge. So read John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47, and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This shows the terrible effect of man putting himself under the authority of Satan. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be taught of thy word. May the full impact of what this means to our lives and to our world be brought home. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today's lecture is Doctrine of Imputed Sin. Now, Hal Lindsey. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom to study your word openly. We pray that the Holy Spirit will teach us today what it means to be set free in Jesus Christ and how all of it took place in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, please. There's a story I heard of a man who had a large factory, and he had he constantly was concerned about his health. The man was a Christian, and he walked out one day and he saw this man who was uh, pounding some steel. They were it was a steel forge uh, foundry. He saw this man pounding the steel with a big hammer, and every time he would hit that piece of steel, he'd say. Oh, Adam. And uh, so the owner of this factory went up to him and he said, "Uh, Why do you keep cursing Adam? He said, Well, because if it hadn't been for Adam, I wouldn't have to work. And so this man said, Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, From now on, you don't have to work a lick around here. All you have to do is just come in and just start to putt around, do whatever you want to. He said, you can just start a place, and you'll draw your check just like you always did. So this went on for a few days, and when the guy came into his office, the office of the boss, he said, "Uh, there's only one stipulation that I'm going to give you. He said, you see this box on my desk? He said, don't you ever open it. (laughs) <laughs> well, for about three or four weeks This guy just roamed around the place And he didn't know what to do with himself He was getting bored and So he just he figured he might as well occupy himself with things After all, he didn't have to So it wouldn't really work So he started dusting things off And for about three or four days He was dusting around this box on the boss's desk And finally he couldn't stand it anymore and so old Joey grabs that box, and he picks it up, and he opens that box, and he looks in there, and there was a note. That said, Don't you cuss at him anymore, you rascal. If you'd have been there, you'd have done the same thing. <laughs> well, in essence, that's the, that's the story we've got here in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, justice through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, this is the doctrine of imputed sin, which says that Adam was the federal head of the human race, and he made a choice which is binding for all of us. And if you think that that's unfair, then you ask yourself this question. If you would have been there, do you think you would have done anything different? God says you wouldn't. When the President of the United States in 1941 declared war on Japan, he made a decision which was binding on the whole of the United States because he's the federal head or he was the federal head of the United States so it is here and so the question that I, like this do I become a sinner? because I sin, or do I sin because I'm a sinner? Which one is it? The second is right. I sin because I'm a sinner. There's only one man who has ever become a sinner because he sinned, and that was Adam. You sin because you're a sinner. And if you don't believe that, you wait till you have some children. You know, I've found conclusive evidence to this doctrine. I have never had to teach my little children to be bad once. It just comes naturally. As a matter of fact, you have to discipline them to make them understand good. And that's because they're born with a nature that is sinful. Now my two beautiful little girls, twin daughters, five and a half years old. But I remember when they were three days old, and they were both home from the uh, hospital for the first time. I remember looking in there. We didn't. We didn't know we were. We were caught a little unaware about twins. So we had one crib, and they were both in the same crib. And one would reach over and touch the other, and the other one would say. Rawr! Because right then she was expressing her little ego. Or if something happened that she didn't like, she'd just really let you know. She'd throw a tantrum. Little babies could throw a tantrum. And that was evidence of the sin nature. And so the line of argument that Paul presents here, he says, for until law was in the world, for, wait a minute, Let me start with verse 12 again. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam unto Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is the type of him who was to come. Now here's the logic that Paul is using here. He is proving that man has a sin nature by this fact. There was only one law given up until Moses, one specific declaration from God, and that was, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that was the law. That was the first one. And... Man broke that one. Now from that time until Moses there was not an objective written law or an objective declared law for man. But man died anyway. Now how do we explain the fact that man died anyway? The only conclusion is that man was judged on the basis of the fact not of personal acts of sin, but because he had a sin nature. And that's that's his logic, you see. Death reigned, and all men died from Adam to Moses, even though there was no law. And when there is no law, there is no... As far as God is concerned, there is no personal sin, because they're not breaking a law. Sin is breaking a specific known law. And so he says... Since men died it proves that they were held accountable for having a sin nature. They were held accountable for what they are, not for what they did. All right, that then chapter five, verse twelve through fourteen is the key the key passage on spiritual death. Yes, sir. What statement? Uh, Can someone tell me uh, which one? Yes, go ahead. Well, I'm saying that from Adam to Moses, during the period from Adam to Moses, that men were not condemned and they didn't die physically on the base, or, or spiritually, when we talk about death, we're talking both about both spiritual and physical death. Because physical death is a result of spiritual death. Now, from Adam to Moses, men were not judged in the sense that they died because of their personal acts of sin, but because of the sin nature in them. Is that clear? Okay, thank you. Uh, By the way, there's another point of clarification I want to bring up. A man after the lecture yesterday came up and he said, uh, boy, you guys, two or three of you have sure been hard on men with PhDs. And he said, it sounds like you're, you know, you're just sort of lumping all men with PhDs together and saying they're all bad. Well, if I implied that, I certainly didn't mean it, and I want to publicly uh, say that. I'm just saying that The man with a Ph.D. who is not a Christian and who uses his intellect as a basis for rejecting Christianity is the one I'm talking about. All right, now I've got to press on. We'll answer some questions later. All right, spiritual death, then, is the loss of the spiritual dimension of life through which we could know God personally and understand divine phenomena. That's the doctrine, and that's one you're going to have to know. Spiritual death (coughs) is the loss of the spiritual dimension of life through which alone we could know God in a personal way and understand divine phenomena. And the main passage is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Now here's what I used to do. When I was a young Christian, the way I learned the Scripture, and this was one of the most important things I ever did, because it built categories of truth and it enabled me to understand the Bible more rapidly. Every time I would learn a doctrine, I would take, I would take my Bible, I would memorize the, the doctrine, that is, for instance, let's say spiritual death, and then I would memorize in association with the subject spiritual death the main passage. In this case, it's Romans 5, 12 through 14. So in the column, by Romans 5, 12, I would write a concise definition of it And then I would write the other scripture passages, the parallel passages that dealt with the same subject. And I'll tell you that's one of the most important things I ever did in my life. So what I recommend for you to do so that you'll be able to teach, so that you'll be a teacher that can follow up your students, is to do the same thing. Memorize the main passage on it and then Put a concise definition of the of the truth there, and list your parallel passages. Now, here are some parallel passages on spiritual death. <clears throat> Ephesians 2:1. You were you who were dead has he made alive. Ephesians 2:1. Colossians 2:13. You who were dead in trespasses and sins. Uh John 3:36. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, but he that believes not has not what? Life, spiritual life. He has not spiritual life, and the wrath of God abides upon him. John 5, 21. Truly, truly, I say to you he that hears my words and uh, believes the one who sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation, but has already passed from death to life. Five twenty four. All right, those are parallel passages. All right. Now what I want to do at this point is to show as a result of the fall How this made a, a universal barrier between man and God. A barrier which man can never climb over by his own efforts. Right? Here is man after the fall. He's turned his back on God. You can see he's a very handsome specimen. Man has turned his back on God, and through his choice he has erected a great barrier between himself and God. Now, The first part of that barrier is sin, and this refers to the nature of sin it refers to thought sins, and it refers to actions. So sin in its three forms, thought, nature, thought, and act. I do what I do because I am what I am. All right? Then another part of this barrier is that he became a slave to Satan and we're going to take that up in just a second he sold himself to Satan as a slave another part is spiritual death spiritual death is a barrier because God is a spirit, and those who have fellowship with him must have the same kind of life, spiritual life. So that's a barrier. Sin is a barrier because it is against the character of God. But the greatest part of this barrier is God's absolute righteousness plus R and absolute justice. Now those two attributes together make up holiness. So this is the barrier that separates man from God. And any plan of salvation has to deal with every one of these barriers, and this barrier is universal to all men. It's, it's a barrier for the immoral man. It's a barrier for the moral man because God, God doesn't accept respectability or social respectability. It has to be absolute righteousness. It's a barrier for the religious man because just because a guy fills the void in his life by religious ritual and so forth. It doesn't make him acceptable to God. And so there's, this is a universal barrier between man and God. And I want to give specific scriptures on each one of these. Let's start with the first. God's righteousness and justice. Isaiah chapter fifty nine, verses one and two I'm going to read that from the amplified Old Testament. It says this Behold the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dulled with deafness that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin separates us from God. Isaiah 64, 6 is another important verse on this. For we have all become as one who is unclean. And all our righteousnesses, our best deeds, are as filthy rags and a polluted garment. We all fade as the wind, or fade as the leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away from God. Now here's the thrust of that verse. All of our good deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. Now, this doesn't mean our sins. This means our best deeds, the things we think are good. They're still filthy rags in God's sight because they do not add up to God's righteousness. The sum total of all human good deeds doesn't add up to the righteousness of God. So all fall short. And this is what happens when man sins. This This is the character of God. Well, we sure need a screwdriver on that thing. It falls apart every time you touch it. This box is going to represent the essence or the character of God. Now, you had a little bit of this in John, I, I think. The Bible reveals that God is sovereign. That is, he has the right to do as he chooses, since he is the creator of all things. It also reveals that God is absolute righteousness, which means that he is the standard of right. He is right within himself, and from that righteousness emanates a holy law. He's also absolute justice, which means he must always be fair and equitable and impartial in administering the standard of his righteousness. God is also perfect love. He loves the unlovely as well as the lovely. He loves those who who hate him. God is also eternal life. God is omniscient. Eternal life, by the way, means that he is self-existent, no beginning. He has always existed and always will exist. And he is the source of all life. Omniscience is the other attribute up here. Omniscience means that God knows all things. When you couple that with eternal life, it means there never was a time when he didn't know all things, as one simple thought. And God has the wisdom to solve any problem, whether actual or potential. These are things that are revealed. He also knows things beforehand. He has perfect insight into everything. All right, God also is omnipotent, which means he has all power. God is omnipresent, which means He's personally present in all places at one time. Since He is a spirit, this is possible. All right? God is veracity. I should put at this point immutable. That is, God doesn't change, God is immutable. God is veracity, absolute truth. Which means he must be true to himself. Now, when man chose to stop believing in the goodness of God and therefore doubted God's word and then sinned against him, it instantly created a polarity within the very character of God. At that moment... God's righteousness looked down upon man's sin and said, He's no longer like me. He's no no longer compatible with me. And when that happened, God's justice looked down and said, The wages of sin is death, separation from God. And so... God's righteousness and justice became a barrier between God and man. The most serious barrier that exists is God's righteousness and justice. God still loved man, and that's why we're going to be studying for the next two weeks what Christ did on the cross. But just because God loved man, he could not compromise his righteousness and justice And so there was a polarity established within the character of God because, on the one hand, God still loved man, and he yearned. Are you having a hard time hearing over there? Well, uh, one of y'all run up there. Does anyone know where the switch is? How's that? Better? God loved man. Is that better? <laughs> Poor Gene Verbeff over here has trouble trying to keep quiet within his walls over there, and I guess he keeps cutting it down. But God loved man. There you are. You, you heard me on that, didn't you, pal? <laughs> God's love yearned to bring man back in fellowship. But God's love could not be expressed at the expense of his righteousness and justice. If God compromised his righteousness and justice because he loved man and wanted to bring man back, then there could be no God. God cannot compromise any attribute in order to express another attribute. That's one of the most important things you'll ever learn. So. God's righteousness and justice had to be satisfied before man could be accepted. And so God, who exists in three persons, Father, God the the first person is called the Father, God the second person became known as the Son by the Incarnation did not mean he was ever born. He was never born as God, but he was born as a human. God the Son is the second person. God the Holy Spirit is the third person, co-equal and co-eternal with each other. Now, this meant that in order to tear down this universal barrier that separated all men from God, that God would have to satisfy righteousness and justice so the Son elected to become a true man, in order that he might satisfy the righteousness of God because he was perfectly righteous himself as a man, and that he might satisfy the justice of God by bearing all of the wrath of God that was due the sin of the human race himself. He qualified to do so because he had no sin of his own. We'll talk about this when we get to the truth of propitiation. But that represented the greatest barrier that separated man from God, God's holiness, because righteousness and justice is what the Bible calls holiness. All right? Then there's the problem of man's sin. Now, I want to give you some specific passages on sin. The key passage to sin is Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 24. I'd like for you to turn there. The sin, spiritual death, the key passage is Romans 5.12, but sin as a general subject is Mark 7, chapter 20, or Mark 7, verse 20. Here Jesus said, and he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man, far from within, Out of the heart of men proceeds the evil thoughts, and fornications, and thefts, and murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man." Now This just tears most of secular psychology apart. Because it shows that man's actions do not come from without, they come from within. They do not come from man's environment, they come from a heart problem. And so, notice the progression here. In verse 21, from within, out of the heart, now there, the heart is talking about The inner thought, or the inner part of man's mind, which has in it the old sin nature, a disposition toward rebellion against God, which we call a sin nature. Now, the Scripture uses the terms flesh, the old man, and sin in the singular to describe this. But it's completely uh, corrupted, man's heart all right he says out of the hearts proceed evil thoughts now that's the first part in the chain out of the heart there comes evil thought and all sin starts with thought and God considers When you yield your thoughts to temptation, he considers that to be as much sin as if you actually did it. And Matthew chapter 5 shows that. Jesus said, You heard it said by those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look after a woman with the intention to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart already. Now, it's not a sin to be tempted. That is for the idea to lust after a woman to come into your mind. But it is a sin when you do not uh, depend upon Christ to deal with this, when you don't just look away from the temptation of Christ and depend upon him. That's a thought sin. We'll have a lot more to say about that the last week of the course. But evil thoughts are where God really works. You know, man can kind of clean up the outside, and that's the context of this passage, He uses the illustration, he says, you Pharisees clean up the outside of the plate or the bowl, but you never clean the inside. Another place, Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombstones. On the outside you're beautiful, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. That's what religion does. Religion cleans up the outside, but it cannot. There is nothing which man can do to clean up his inside. There's nothing he can do. And so that's where God really looks. You can fool people, but the Bible says, the Lord looketh on the heart. And as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is, the Bible says. I believe that's about Proverbs uh, 23, 6. I'm not sure. So first, there's evil thoughts, and this is sin, our acts of sin. Here is sin in the singular. And those thoughts produce actions, acts of sin, outward acts of sin. So that's your progression. They originate with the sin nature, and if we fail to trust Christ with these things, as we're tempted, here's where temptation takes place, right here. When we're first, when we're tempted with something, that's not a sin, but when we yield our thought pattern to begin to think on them, then it's sin. And those thoughts, if harbored, will produce action. So that's part of the barrier, man's sin. And that all men's sin is clear. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 There's not a good man on earth who doeth good and sinneth not. That's what Solomon said in his wisdom as God inspired him. Ecclesiastes seven twenty. There's not a good man on earth who doeth good and sinneth not. But the, one of the verses that has so much wisdom that it's just as true today as it ever was and it's very instructive is Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 which says the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can understand it you know what that verse is saying we can't even understand our own hearts we can't understand why we have such vicious and evil reactions to people or why we have crazy thoughts come into our mind. The problem is if you don't know how to walk in the Spirit, you start trying not to think about it, and when you try not to think about it, the more you think about it. You know, it's sort of like uh, some song coming into your mind. And after a while, you get bugged with a song, and then you stop trying to think about it. Guess what happens? You can't shake it. And because of this sin nature, victory in the Christian life has to take place by a miracle. You cannot produce victory in your life because the sin nature is such a problem that it cannot be reformed. We'll get into that. But the sin nature makes the ministry of the Holy Spirit an absolute necessity. You cannot live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. The minute you set up external standards and try to claim the power of the Holy Spirit to keep them, you're under law and the thing backfires on you, your sin nature gets control of you because the law simply activates the sin nature to have more power. But the heart of man is deceitful. The sin nature corrupts our subconscious mind where we can't fight. Only the Holy Spirit can fight for us there. And so we can't even understand why certain drives and motivations come out. The only way we can live is by faith, and this is why the Scripture says in Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. And so this sin represents a barrier. It's a problem in nature, thought, and action, and all alike. Are against God and there has to be an act of redemption to to pay the ransom for this sin to deliver us from its power we're all slaves to sin all right now let's get to this barrier of being a slave to Satan I cannot become God's child until he sets me free From my slavery to Satan, because I am born into this world the property of Satan. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Verses 43 and 44. In this passage, uh, Jesus has been saying that those who sin are slaves of sin, but sin actually makes us a slave of Satan also. In verse 44 he shows it. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. That's normal. The one who is your father gives you your nature, and you want to follow it. And so he says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, you know, one of the basic platforms of the World Council of Churches is the universal fatherhood of God. Now, how does that stack up with this verse? You know, the Bible says there are two fatherhoods in the world. Now, God is the creator of all men, but he is not the father of all men. Every man is born with Satan as his father. And God only becomes your father when you place personal faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, You are the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And only by faith in Jesus Christ. So to teach that God is the father of everyone is a gross heresy. He is not. And you know, this is why a Christian should not marry a non-Christian. Look who your father-in-law will be. (laughs) Not to mention the fact that you've got a dimension of life that the other one doesn't have and they can't even interact with you. The most important part of your life, it doesn't even exist in them. So how can there be compatibility? So that's, you know, God always has a good reason for his statements, and he says that a Christian should not marry a non-Christian. You can do it if you want to, but I'll give you a written guarantee of a lot of misery. All right? So this says that Satan is the father of everyone who's born into this world. Now, here's what happened. In Genesis, when when Adam sinned, he actually turned over the legal right to himself, to Satan. He became the property of Satan, and furthermore, he turned over the the property rights of all of his children to Satan because he followed Satan instead of God you see uh, Adam had the power of attorney over himself by free choice and incidentally he also had a p- power of eternit a power of attorney over the whole world that is the the material universe And all the animal kingdom the material world and all of the animal kingdom in it and all of the property in it and when he followed Satan he turned he actually betrayed God and he became the Benedict Arnold of the universe because God had had trusted entrusted him with the legal right over all the earth and over himself And so he sold himself out to Satan and he became under the absolute authority of Satan. And he put the whole world under the authority of Satan too. Now this is why in Luke chapter 4, when Satan tempted Jesus Christ, who was the second Adam, he was the second man on earth to be perfect. Satan came to Jesus and he said, If you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And then he insolently told Jesus, he says, for they have been given over to me, and I can give them to whomever I choose. And Jesus didn't dispute that for a moment. You see, God has to be fair even with Satan. And since it was a legal transaction when man obeyed Satan, he turned himself over to Satan, he turned the world over to Satan, and the world was in Satan's power, absolutely, until Jesus went to the cross. Because there is when Jesus regained the legal right for the world and for those who would believe in him. Now, God so honored this, this uh, transaction that we find in the book of Jude. In verse 9, it says, But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. All right, now here, here is the point. When Moses died, the Lord sent Michael, the archangel, to get his body and bring it to heaven. And there were only a few before the cross whose bodies were taken to heaven. Elijah was one. Enoch was another. But the rest of the the souls and the bodies of those even who were believers were kept here on earth until the cross. Then they were taken to the presence of God. And the reason was because technically Satan still had the legal right over them and God had to put the salvation of people on uh, who were saved in the Old Testament on account until Jesus would pay the price at the cross. Now that's why Satan is called the God of this world in Second Corinthians chapter four. Verse 4, 4, four. It says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to those who are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who believe not lest the glorious light of the gospel should shine to them, and they be converted. Satan blinds the minds of men. Satan has absolute control over the world, and the word world, cosmos, means an orderly system which is under Satan's control. And man did this when he sold himself out to Satan. This is also brought out in Colossians chapter 1, Verse 13, where it says, for it speaks of the one who believes in Christ, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, we are born into the domain of darkness, which is under Satan's absolute rulership. And 1 John 5, verse 19, says this, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, this is what it means when Christ goes to the cross and he provides redemption. And we'll take that up. He pays the ransom of sin... He pays the ransom price of sin in order that he can set us free from slavery to Satan and to sin. And we'll find out what that means later. And as I said before, spiritual death is a barrier because God is a spirit and we cannot even know and understand him until we have spiritual life. Now this is a universal barrier between all men and God. I don't care how relatively good, one man might be over another, they're all equally fallen short of God. You know, there used to be a a game that they played here in Southern California. They called it Jumping to Catalina, and they had a pier down in Santa Monica where they would play this game. And guys would take a, they would take a long run and they'd take a flying leap off of the pier into the Pacific Ocean. Now some guys, of course, would travel several feet farther than the other guys would. And uh, there were some who could jump. Oh, since they had quite a bit of height, these guys were jumping out 50 or 60 feet into the Pacific. And they call that jumping to Catalina. Now, let's say that one guy jumped 30 feet and this other guy jumps 50 feet. Well, boy, that's quite a bit farther, isn't it? But look how far far short it falls from Catalina. It's 26 miles. Now, that's about the way it is with men trying to earn their acceptance with God. Sure, one guy might outwardly and socially look quite a bit better with others if we compare them with each other. But boy, when we compare them with the righteousness of God, all fall so far short that it represents an impossible chasm to bridge. And we must see that this barrier cannot even be approached by our own efforts. And we must see the seriousness of this barrier before we will appreciate the work of Christ on the cross. Tomorrow. We're going to talk about the law, sin's revealer. I'd like for you to read Romans chapter 7, carefully, Galatians chapter 3, carefully, and I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. And I want you to answer this question. What does it mean when it says, the power of sin is the law? The power of sin is the law. You tell me what you think that means. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ alone has bridged the barrier that separated us from you. and By simple faith, we can have a full fellowship with you. In Christ's name, amen.